You all can take a seat. Well, good morning. How's everybody doing on this daylight savings end time? Everybody's awake here with us? I hope so. Okay, uh, kids, by the way, are uh, dismissed to with Pastor Becky and friends for their story today and the kids' table. It's going to be awesome. So I hope you're awake. I hope you had a couple extra cups of coffee. If you're worshiping with us from home, uh, grab that pot, grab another sip right there with you too. And we're blessed here to even to have us our own little coffee bar here in person. I hope you'll take advantage of that over the next few weeks. Well, I am bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. I was up early this morning, just... Uh, uh, excited for today. I was actually wondering what day it was. At first I thought it was Monday, and then I realized it wasn't. So I'm glad to be here with you after a crazy busy week, I have to say, with traveling and all sorts of stuff, but glad to be with you. Um, well, a couple weeks ago, I got together with a friend of mine that I hadn't seen in quite a while, and we were just talking about life and some of the things, some shows we were watching, things that we were reading, and just the conversation kind of went goes from there as when you get together with a friend you haven't seen. And it was really interesting. The conversation went a certain way. I wasn't expecting it. That um, she shared with me about this article that she had read, and um, and what was part of that article were a whole bunch of things that like growing up and even uh, from kids to becoming kids to adults, um, things that like we had held to be true that actually weren't. And it was really mind blowing to me. It really rocked my world for a couple of minutes. And um, I want to share with you a couple of things that she shared with me that I actually verified on the internet. So of course it's true, right? So um, the first is we all knew that toilet seats are full of germs, right? They're full of germs. Well, did you know that your cell phone has 10 times more? We're gonna pass around like the wipes right now so everybody can get extra clean. Um, the Great Wall of China is said to be seen from the moon. Eh, actually, that was made up by Ripley's Believe It or Not in the year 1939, decades before anybody had actually made it to the moon. Um, here, this, this was interesting. Um, we're told to wait 30 minutes um, after we eat to go swim, right? Because you're gonna what? Get a cramp, oh my gosh. Well, do you believe that there has not been a single person who has ever died from eating uh, less than 30 minutes before swimming? And actually, physiologically, it doesn't actually divert enough blood from your muscles that anything bad would happen. I guess maybe if you're an Olympic swimmer, you might not want to for other reasons. Um, we're told that in your veins, right? Blood is blue because it's not oxygenated. It doesn't have oxygen. Wrong. So it's actually just the tissue that wraps your veins. The blood is red wherever it is in your body. I was like, oh my gosh, that's crazy. We're also told that we only use 10% of our brain. That's not right. Unless you were a teenager. If you were a teenager. I love you kids. Don't worry. That's just, just kidding there. But we're told it's only 10% of our brain. We actually use the majority of our brain. It's not just wasted space up there. So the next time somebody tells you that otherwise, you could say that. Um, this one is actually super helpful. Uh, we're told that you have to wait 24 to 48 hours before filing a missing persons report. Some of us go by that. It's actually not true. You can file a missing persons report at any time at, that you believe somebody to be missing. You don't have to wait a certain period of time. Um, and then the last one that I just kind of threw in here, the idea that only religious people go to church. 
eh, not right. We have all sorts of people that go to church, uh, and I wouldn't even characterize myself as particularly like religious in the sense of the actual word. But uh, just thinking about these things, and maybe there's some others that really like you were shocked as you uh, came to, to a different idea. Um, it, it's easy sometimes to respond defensively. That you're like, oh, well, I was told this by so-and-so, and they were a doctor, they did this, and we kind of, or say, oh, well, so-and-so, and I never really verified. But there's also a point in that, that there's a, this thing I call the aha moment, that you can almost picture like a little cartoon, the light bulb going on over your head. You're like, oh, really? Wow. Like, just a change in your mind, a change in direction. A time that we recognize that you may have held a misguided belief. Well, did you know that this also occurs with elements of our faith? It also occurs with elements of our faith. And the word heretic, the word heretic has been used as a weapon in Christian history. It's a word that's usually given to people whose beliefs fall outside the normal range of Christian doctrine. And I have to say this, the church's response has been really, really terrible over the last several hundred thousand years. We've often outlawed people or ostracized them. We've cast them to the side. We've excommunicated them. And then people have become very afraid to voice any differing in thought of some belief. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've had that experience. Well, today we're starting this new series that we're calling Heretic. It's kind of the pronunciation that's up there on that slide. Um, and I promise that through this series, it's kind of a mini-series. It's over the next three weeks um, that leads us up until Advent when we prepare for Christmas. And it's going to be kind of a teaching series, more a little bit teachy than it is preachy. Uh, and I promise this, that we will not be attacking or ostracizing anybody. So what's happened in history of the church, you can kind of forget that. That's not going to happen here. But my hope is that there may be a couple of aha moments for you, things that you never thought about before or might be thinking of a little bit differently, things that this would be a first step in unpacking the truths that we hold in our Christian faith. Uh, what we're going to do every week is talk about a popular popular belief that many hold or have elements of in your faith, and why Christians, especially the early Christians, may have thought differently about it. Uh, we're also going to talk about why it's important and ultimately what's at stake for us today, why it matters. And, and truthfully, this is just a, a kind of overarching theme for the series. There's a few reasons why I think this is important for us, for us in, in particular. And the first is that we're a diverse community from our backgrounds, as far as our backgrounds go. We're, we're a diverse community, and those of you who are watching online are included in this. We come from a lot of different backgrounds. Some people were brought up in church of a certain denomination or faith background. Some maybe were in or are coming back. We're different places, many different influences. And, and I think that's what makes our, our, our church great, too, here at Table Life Church, is that it makes us unique because everybody isn't just totally streamlined. But the thing is, we have to filter what we hear. It's important to filter what we hear. And John, in the, his letter, 1 John, uh, he shares this point very poignantly. He says, dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. See, having different beliefs 
is good. Having different shades of beliefs is good. But John is saying, though, to test those beliefs, not just to take in something, maybe because someone standing up here in a position like me is, is telling you that, or something that you saw online or somebody else shared with you. It's to test those beliefs. And I believe that's an important factor of being the church, right? Is that we don't check our brain at the door. We don't check our brain at the door, that God made us as human beings. We have brains too, and we're meant to use them to process. But the second reason is important because a lot of us hold these beliefs, but we haven't necessarily investigated the implications of them. See, some of us believe certain things in good faith, but we haven't thought out it through to say why. We haven't taken time to investigate the why. And maybe you've been caught in a certain circumstance. Somebody's asked you a question and you've been kind of like the deer in the headlights, like, I don't know, right? <laughs> You're like, oh, the best answer? Like, let me get back to you about that. But it's good to explore and to look at the implications for our faith. But the lastly, finally, we have to ask questions. It's good to ask questions. And talking about beliefs makes us the church that we are. We're never gonna, um, there's never gonna be somebody up here, myself or others, that's gonna say, you better believe this. Like, we have to ask questions because we believe here at Table Life that the table is open and it's open to all, regardless of where you are in your faith journey. That you don't have to be scared of doubting or asking a certain question always verse it like, this may be stupid, but, you know, there is no stupid question. We want questions. They're good things. Well, the first belief we're going to examine today is specifically around Jesus. I thought that would be a great way for us to start. And, and a lot of folks look at Jesus, and this may be you or maybe somebody you know, uh, as they look at Jesus as a great moral teacher, but have a hard time believe that, believing that he is divine. See, many people are not sure of Jesus' miracles, his exorcisms, or even the resurrection itself. But others of us who have given our faith, to, have placed our faith in Christ and received his grace, others of us have never fully dug into the why we believe he is divine. Maybe you've never really thought of that or processed that before. But many people struggle with Jesus' divinity, especially these days. And if that's you, you're not alone. See, this has been happening since the beginning of Christianity. This goes back 2,000 years. It started early on. See, in the first few centuries, there was this, this huge, huge debate that erupted in the church, in the big C church, all these little gatherings that were happening, and now the, empire, the Roman Empire is now involved with that. And, and sometimes we tend to reflect back and look at, oh, the early church, like they were super perfect little angels, that everything was so great, and we should emulate and model them. Well, if you believe that, then you probably have to read the rest of the New Testament all these letters that Paul wrote about, or we had other, other sayings, but you can listen to how they speak, to how they speak, to what they say. This was himself, what he said about himself. John tells us in chapter 12, this is something very, very important that Jesus said. Jesus cried out, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. Time and time again, Jesus talks about himself, which was a heresy at time in the, in the Jewish faith because he was declaring and associating himself with God as the one who, who brings healing and salvation. Like, who is that? 
time and time again, he identifies himself with God. Well, famous writer, author, you might be familiar, C.S. Lewis, Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe. I know many people here are big fans of him. Um, he said this, he said, a man who was merely a man and said that sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, equivalent to someone who was calling himself a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell himself. Oh, Right? Well, do you believe it or not? Then go to rocks in people's world. C.S. Lewis didn't come up with that quote. He's actually requoting a guy named John Duncan from 1859 who said, Christ either deceived mankind by cautious fraud or he was himself deluded and self-deceived or he was divine. So you have to wrestle with that. You have to wrestle with that. What did Jesus say about himself? If he's that, that crazy, do you want to believe the rest of the stuff that he was saying? Uh, But we also have to look at what Jesus' earliest followers believed. That's important for us in the life of the church. And there's kind of two two, um, sections of this. Uh, First, our sources outside the Bible. Do you believe that there are writings outside Scripture, outside the Bible, that we can look to and learn about Jesus and what was taking place? There was research that was done about a decade ago about the historical Jesus. And there was this whole group of people, very educated people that came together. And you know what their conclusion first was? It was that Jesus existed. Yes, there was a man. This is not a fairy tale. This is not a legend. And, but also if we go back, if we go back, we see that Jesus is mentioned by Jewish and Roman historians. There's this guy, this Jewish guy named Josephus, and he was living about the time, like about 93 AD. He had a lot of writings, and he recounts that there had been an unlawful execution, and so at the time, about, about 30 AD, and so Josephus identifies other people. He identifies later on some of the disciples, some followers of Jesus, including this guy named James, James. And he identifies him as the brother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah, James. Uh, Tacitus, he's a Roman historian. He writes in 116 AD, he says, Christus, the founder of the name, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator in Judea in the reign of Tiberius. That there's these writings that talk about this guy named Jesus that walked the earth, but something happened there, something strange. They don't necessarily affirm to say he was the son of God or that he was any God in any form, but they indicate that there was something that happened. But then if we look inside scripture, we see a story of transformation, Because we see a story of how right up to the moments of the crucifixion, we have a whole group of disciples that had been following Jesus for three years, right? They'd been walking and traveling with him and eating with him and spending all their time with him. And then at the crucifixion, where do they go? They bolt. They get out of there. They're thinking like, oh my gosh, this is going to happen to me. They, They leave. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we shared the, the story of the uh, journey to Emmaus and these disciples that they were headed out of town. They're like, I'm not even staying in Jerusalem. I'm getting out of here because they had lost hope. But then we see just a couple pages later in our scripture and just even a couple hours later in the story, a transformation occurs. Transformation from, from hopelessness to hope. 
to then seeing Jesus alive, touching him, seeing his scars, seeing him, he's back. And then further, we hear in the book of Acts, this moment that happens, we call it the Pentecost, the birth of the church, that they're all gathered in this little upper room because they're really, they're still scared that that they're going to be killed. And then you know what happens? The Holy Spirit comes to them and they become bold. They become bold to the point that, that out, of, out of the 11 of them, 10 of them are put to death for their faith. So what happened? What happened from this, these guys that are running away from the scene to all of a sudden they're, they're giving themselves sacrificially to share the gospel? Something happened in between there. It's, it's interesting, even uh, Jesus' own brother James, who was, was mentioned uh, by Josephus, his own brother James. You imagine, what would you do if your brother said he was God? What would you, would you like go, oh, sure, right? Most of us would be like, you got something wrong with you. What did you eat or what are you smoking, right? Uh, but most of us would be like, oh, yeah, that's, that's kind of crazy here. <laughs> but then we see that James places his faith. I mean, it takes a lot for your sibling to believe you're the son of God, right? Something must have happened. He becomes a great leader in the early church. And we see in scripture time and time again that Jesus is, is the revealer. His kind of roles here are a revealer. He's a rabbi and a teacher. John calls him the word. The word became flesh and lived among us. He's also a rescuer. He rescues people. A savior, deliverer. He's also a ruler. He's also a ruler. That as the son of God and as the son of man, it's kind of a poetic way of saying that he's human, but it's also a perspective uh, going back to the Old Testament scripture of Daniel 7, the one of God who has come in fulfillment of the scripture. He's meant to rule, but in a different way. So Jesus said this about himself. We look at history. We look at outside the Bible, inside the Bible. We see these things that are, that are pointing to, to somewhat of this divinity here. And so there comes a point we have to ask the question, why? You know, but why does it matter? Have you ever asked that question? Why does it matter if Jesus was divine? Like, couldn't he, like, okay, the C.S. Lewis quote or John Duncan, like, you know, I get it. I kind of have to make a decision. Was the guy crazy or was he, was he actually divine? But, but why does it matter in the big scheme of things? Well, Paul, the Apostle Paul, just 20 years after Christ, he writes this letter, 1 Corinthians. And it, he actually writes in the cha- we, our chapter, chapters weren't put until a lot later, but our chapter 15 is actually the earliest account that we have of Jesus' appearances after resurrection. And so at the time in, in 1 Corinthians, he's confronting a belief, a doubting of Jesus' divinity in this community in Corinth, that Jesus wasn't divine and he wasn't risen. And his response, after accounting all of these eyewitness experiences of Jesus after the resurrection, he says this, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. 
For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. So why does it matter that Christ was divine? Well, first, if Christ wasn't raised, our faith is worthless. It's worthless. Well, our time here together is totally worthless. And some people may think that. You may have friends that say that. Uh, and have you ever had the experience of asking someone a question about faith? And they, their response to you was, just believe. You know, you had a question about the Bible. What about Genesis? Like this stuff that was happening, was this real, was ever? And somebody's like, just believe, right? I remember as a scientist, um, it was kind of like my first life, not like I died life, but like before I became a pastor, um, I was a scientist and um, I remember wrestling with lots and lots of questions about the Bible, about Jesus. And I wanted a faith that made sense, something that I could wrap my brain around, not just like these weird gaps of the, you know, I don't know, just believe. I don't know, just believe. And, and the thing is, many of us will, we will, you will, struggle with parts of the story that we haven't been able to see or prove. See, there, there is no archaeological record that points to ever verify every single thing that Jesus did. Uh, that was likely of 100% of the peasants of the first century. Jesus was one of them. That nobody kept those things. They only kept them of, of actual kings in the worldly sense. But when we see Jesus only as a great moral teacher, what we do is we make Jesus small enough that he requires no faith to believe in. Requires no faith. See, it didn't and it doesn't require faith to believe that Jesus is just a good guy. But to believe that Jesus is more than that, that's the claim of Scripture. That's the claim of Scripture. But for us, there is a part of this that it requires a trust that we can never 100% fully prove on this side of heaven. It's not a whole just believe and receive type thing. We need to explore stuff. But we'll never come to 100%. Uh, if you've ever been on a jury or asked to serve jury duty, you know this. It's when you're called up and you have to go and you have to serve on a trial. I don't know if you've had that experience or at least you've kind of like seen the shows, right? You've watched Law and Order, dun dun, right? You've watched these things and it comes to a point that the jury, of course, they have not been at the scene of the crime. They were not there. They were doing other things in other places. But they're called on to make a conclusion about the evidence that they've been presented. That's our place in faith, is that given the evidence that we weren't there, we can't go back, we can't rewind time and all of a sudden insert ourselves you know, back to the future. has not happened yet, as far as I know. But we will have to make our conclusion based on faith and the evidence available. See, being serving on a jury is an act of faith. You're making a decision based on the things you have, but also based on the gaps that you have. And the scripture asks us to struggle with that belief. When we rule out Jesus's divinity, we just reduce God to something that we can grasp, that we can understand, but we know, we know that God is more. See, there's a sense of mystery to God. 
There's a sense of mystery even to Jesus, some of the things he did that we question, that we're continuing to unpack, that it's, it's more than what we might be able to grasp as humans. But isn't there a beauty in that? To say that God is beyond us, and in the church, we've lost some of that mystery that we've kind of go, we go through the motions sometimes and, and we start putting those things to the, to the back burner, but there's a sense of mystery and majesty enwrapped in Jesus. And that's a good thing. And that's a good thing. If not, Paul says, then our faith is worthless. But he also says too, it's important because you're still in your sins. We're still in our sins. And this is a big one for Paul. He says here that he says, uh, we have to examine, you know, what is humanity's basic and biggest problem? It's a good question to ask ourselves. What is humanity's basic and biggest problem? And if you think it's just ignorance, you'd think then that Jesus as a moral teacher would just suffice. But if ignorance, if just more information doesn't solve the problem, you have to wonder, is it something else? You know, is there a time that just more information did not help? Just trying better did not help, even if you tried to do good. Most of us know that over time, we realize we can't. You can only go for so long. The problem isn't ignorance in our world and with us. It's sinfulness. It's sinfulness. It's something deeper. We know what we need to do, but we cannot do it. And thousands of years of human history will prove that point. It's a fundamental brokenness in us and in our world. It's a personal slavery to sin. And we contribute, we contribute to greater systems of sin in our world, whether we know it or we don't. We combine it. It's kind of like that, that old-time movie, The Blob. The Blob, remember, it kind of like goes, if you haven't, great show to watch. You know, I know we're past Halloween, but if you're looking for something, The Blob, right? It just has all these like pieces, and then it begins to spread out. And that's kind of like our sin. It just takes over. The problem's so much deeper than what we can solve on our own. And that's because we need a savior. We need someone who can forgive us, but also recreate us. Someone who can make us new. Someone who's outside of us, but is also a part of us to resolve this world. And Athanasius, 300 AD, he said this. He made this beautiful argument. He said, humans are like great paintings. So uh, imagine a painter, imagine a painting by a master artist. Imagine having that painting for a while, and over time it collects dust and dirt. And if you want to restore it, though, you need the artist to do it. You need the artist to save the painting. See, God is a master artist, but over time sin has distorted that become people that we're not supposed to be, live in a world that's not supposed to be. Even people that say like, oh, I don't know about Jesus, I'm not religious or whatever, you would, they would still say, we would still say that there's something that yearns inside of us when we see a child who is starving. To say that shouldn't be. When we see somebody who's dying of cancer, that shouldn't be. And I believe that's, that's on a basic level, that's what most of us want. We want restoration, we want healing, and we want newness. That's why many of us show up to church. There's something inside of us that needs it to know that we're not alone. And when we reduce Jesus to just a moral teacher, we miss that power, that there's no end to sin. But even more importantly, Paul shows us that those who have died in Christ, that if we doubt the divinity of Jesus, if we dismiss the divinity of Jesus, then those who are died in Christ are gone forever. 
And it might sound strange, but if we go back to the early church, to the early Christians, this was their most compelling argument, that the biggest fear and enemy in their lives, it was death itself. And for many of us, and over again in the Bible, Jesus is named the defeater of death, someone who gives life and gives life eternal. And I can tell you this, I can share stories of times that I've sat with someone who is dying, who knows that they don't have much longer. And, and in those conversations that I've had time and time again, even with young people, someone young that you'd be like, why, you know, why? That, that in those conversations, you begin to realize how important this promise is when you're faced with death. See, all the moral instruction, all the moral instruction in the world does nothing at that point. It does nothing. There is, if there's no eternal hope, then we have to say that our hope dies when we die. But scripture says, hope is eternal in Christ. That death is defeated. Not only can God do something bigger and better here and now, but also when this life ends, when this life falls short, we know that there is something to come, that God puts it right. And if you've ever lost someone you love deeply, you know that. You want that. See, the key is not to be perfect on our own. Jesus says, I step in when you fall short. Wrapping this all up, what does this mean? Well, Jesus' divinity is what brings us hope and possibility. Without, without Jesus' divinity, Jesus is just a good man, a very crazy, I would say, man, and that, uh, none of this makes sense. None of it draws us full circle. None of it, it draws that conclusion. See, this is why the majority of Christians have seen Christ as worthy of our worship. The ancient creed, the earliest ancient creed of the early church was three words. Jesus is Lord. That we follow him as Lord. We believe he was fully human. He identifies with us. He gets us. He knows what we go through, but also that he is divine and that he's capable of understanding, forgiving, and redeeming. But if you still wrestle with it, let me tell you this, it's okay. It's okay because billions have come before you that also have to. That it's good for us to lean into the harder parts that are hard to understand because those of us who have come to that strong faith, we can tell you the reward is totally worth it.